Hey everybody, and welcome to our newest project for first responder wellness, No One Fights Alone, an in-depth conversation about mental health and addiction in the first responder space. We're joined by your hosts, Austin Pedersen and Josh Adams. Hey, welcome back everybody, episode 12 of No One Fights Alone. This is Josh and Austin. We've got the clinical director of Chateau, Ben Pearson, with us today. Uh, we want to talk a little bit uh with one another about the expectations we have when we uh, look for help, when we look for treatment, when we look for therapy, and how our own expectations may or may not have an impact on how effective those uh, remedies can be for us in our lives. Yeah, I, I think it's important, though, to add that, like, when we bring someone on like Ben, um, you know, Part of this is is not every single person needs residential treatment, right? And like they don't need to separate from life to to heal completely, right? Like, tell me if I'm wrong, Ben, but there can be a lot accomplished in an hourly session each week with from from your house, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so, like, I, I but in saying that, right? Like, because people when they come to a place like Chateau, they're they're very exposed on the high end of what it is like intensive wise. Right. And, um, you know, Josh being 21 years now, right. 22, 22 and now, half. uh, and you being the same around the same amount of time in, you know, being a therapist, like Josh, what, what was your expectation when going and actually seeking help with a therapist? Like, what did you think you were going to accomplish or like even talk about? I had no idea. I had, I had gone to like EAP level stuff where I felt like all I did was start to talk about experiences and I was traumatizing the, this poor young woman that was the EAP therapist. And and so I, I had a fear that way of, okay, well, what's wrong with me that I start to talk about issues and it's freaking the person out that I'm talking to. Uh, and so when I went back and it was, I was dealing with a, a feeling of, I know something's wrong. I know how I feel, but I don't know where it is and I don't know how to talk about it. And so realistically for me, it was, it was my, my mindset was still very much that, well, what's wrong with me? Something's there's an affliction here. What, what, what is it to be diagnosed and treated the same way anything else is, uh, you know, in a matter of an appointment or two or something like that with normal, you know, physical ailments that we have and so forth. Medication. So that was my expectation. I was like, okay, they're going to tell me I've got this, that, or the other, and here's a prescription or, hey, you got it off your chest, you should be fine now, whatever the case is, and be done. And that was by no means the case. Yeah, and like Ben... You know, being on the other side, what are, what are you seeing as people's goals or ideas of what they're about to to get done in your session? Yeah, it kind of depends. It's 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 pretty interesting, as as Josh was saying. There's a, there's a there's an education we kind of get growing up about what it means to have something even wrong with us, and so I I think that's uh, I think there's a lot of miseducation about being a, a normal person, right? Like all the things you're talking about, Josh, those are incredibly normal. 
if we understand the context of just human development. But if we don't understand development or if we, don't, or if we get some bad information about what it means to experience pain, we're going to believe right off the bat that something's wrong, that we're bad. And to be honest, most people are in this spot of not knowing where to start in treatment because shame is smeared all over everything. So the, the idea of going to even address anything sends off the alarms of don't do it. It's stupid. They're going to judge you. Uh, I judge myself for having these kinds of things. And so I, I think it's interesting people in their first uh, attempts at therapy, treatment, self-help, whatever you want to call it, they are often pretty overwhelmed and bewildered by the data points that are everywhere. And so the, the, the shame of it is, is this, uh, it's a dynamic that just, uh, it, it changes an, an average adult. It's a pretty good problem solver in about every other aspect of life. And when it comes to this emotional stuff, they have to drift through all this misinformation about being a person that uh, they don't know where to start. And usually they don't start. Yeah, they and just don't even initiate. Well, I mean, is it? Are you seeing like a lot of like WebMD kind of like diagnoses from people when they come in? Like they've looked up some of the stuff they're they're dealing with, and then they're like, "I think I have this, this, and this because I read it on Google." I, yeah, I think there's a piece of that. We're definitely in a different culture than we were 20 years ago when I first started, and, and uh, yeah, I, I think there are people that, um, if anything, I see the dynamic of I found the thing that's wrong with me, and if I if we just focus on that, we really don't have to talk about my family, my childhood, the way I talk to people, the way I interact with stress, all of those kinds of things. So they, if anything, they kind of find a shiny object that is a relief. And at the same time, it's probably a distraction from the stuff they're really terrified about. Yeah. And, and like, I, I think that I'm, I'm just speaking from my experience today that when they do something like this and, and find, you know, something online that explains a way, then there's a possibility of letting that diagnosis define them. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, like right. I did this because I'm bipolar or I did this because I'm depressed or, uh, and, and they, I mean, is that a, it seems like they just validate their behavior because of something instead of owning it and saying like, maybe I need to change my behavior. This might be kind of a funny way of saying it, but I, I think there's a lot of that that happens in our culture. And, and how I kind of conceptualize it is it, uh, it depends on their level of maturity with these kinds of conversations. So if, if someone doesn't have a lot of emotional, I don't mean that in a you know, pejorative way, like it's a, it's a negative that anyone who has a blames their behavior on someone else is necessarily as a person immature. But I would say when it comes to emotional problem solving or even just personal awareness, some of us are pretty immature, partially because we just don't have a lot of support and education on this stuff. So I, I think there's people that find a diagnosis and they use it as an excuse to justify an exit from responsibility. Those, those folks stay in that spot for a while until we can kind of help them evolve and mature through that idea and they no longer need to find a scapegoat for their behavior. And I think that it's, it's possible for us as we go through the treatment process to, to again, evolve, to mature. And then later on, one of the signs of people who are really kind of connecting with treatment and connecting with this process is that their language and their approach 
towards problems is starting to be more mature. So accountability is a sign of maturity and obviously blame and excuses is a sign of immaturity. And we see it in kids and we're like, that kid just doesn't know better. They're just, you know, they're trying out a new idea. It's a new trick to try and survive a little bit longer socially and emotionally. And we kind of understand that that's just kid stuff. But when adults do it, um, you know, we don't approach each other and say, you're pretty immature, Austin, the way you manage that situation. We, we don't do that. But the reality is there are some skills that we have that are pretty immature and some conclusions we have about ourselves that are also pretty immature. Not that we intend to do that, but I think that's just, again, we grew up in a culture that just does not offer a lot of education and support about just normal development. Like you should know better already. At this yeah. age, you should already know better where... I mean, how many of us have a whole lot of experience talking about ourselves? Sure. You know, and then it's like all of a sudden I'm in a position where I got to talk about myself and I feel not only uncomfortable, but it's like, I don't even know what to say, Right. you know, other than I don't like me or something like that and be like, okay, here, Ben, I don't like me, fix it, make me like myself. Right. And, and you trying to peel back those layers and be like, well, what, what about you and this, that, the other, and, and we don't, we've never even put. Uh, words in our heads to some of those experiences and emotions and stuff like that. So yeah, the immaturity thing, I think you're spot on. I think it's so interesting because even when you, it's like when we talk about these kinds of things, there's such a little narrow area that we can talk in these areas. If someone actually says something positive about themselves, (laughs) they've only got a handful of words they get to use before you are a narcissist or you have an ego. So even just saying nice things about yourself, you have a very small margin of error. And when it comes to talking negative about yourself, it's kind of this tricky thing that ironically is actually a bit more encouraged. We live in a culture that is very supportive of problems. Yeah. <laughs> Especially if we don't want to talk about our own. We're, we love it when people talk about stuff because yeah. as, you, as you talk about, if you show up with me talking about some, some negative feelings you have about yourself, this might sound a little strange, but if you're going to a mental health professional or a family member and their own maturity around these issues is not very strong, you can tell how much they don't want you to talk about these things. And they kind of shut down yeah. conversations. And so I hear, I hear t- uh, conversations or, or feedback from our first responders that go in and meet with a new counselor-ish or someone that they've bumped into. And this person, if they haven't done some of their own personal work, they might meet someone that's got some pretty horrible stories or some pretty raw, honest truth to share. And they are just rattled and they're freaking out. And that doesn't mean they're a terrible professional, but it, it does challenge them. Yeah. And they may not be if, you know, fully present for you if, if they don't have their own kind of maturity stuff figured out. And that's, you know, that's, our, that's one of the challenges of being a parent, right? So theoretically, as a parent, I'm supposed to have my shit figured out. So when my kid shows up and say, Dad, I don't like me. Yeah, we're not supposed to overreact or <laughs> yeah. underreact. Yeah, we're, we're, we're supposed to react perfectly and it's yeah, like perfectly, patiently, don't take it personal, all of those kinds of things. And so it's pretty interesting about how, uh, you know, yeah, us us doing that work and, and evolving and, and maturing in those ways, um, it's it's pretty important. So when it comes to supporting people in this realm or in other realms, the reality is we have to keep on doing our work. Otherwise, we end up, unfortunately, kind of propelling some of this misinformation that's out there. Yeah. No, and, and this is kind of leading into something I've been interested in for a while. Um, 
and I, and I want to know more information about like, you know, in your opinion, as a professional community in medical and therapy and all of these things, like, do you think that we, cause, cause PTSD and PTSI is the newer age issue, mm-hmm. right? Like, um, it's probably always been there, but you know, not looked at, not noticed, shoved down, you know, deep, but it's, it's coming out more and more like as a, as a professional community, do, do either of you think that we actually have begun to understand what that does to a person, whether it's physically, emotionally, you know, anything like that? I think the field's pretty new. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, Freud and friends were, were just getting rolling about 110 years ago. And, and they were basically creating the vocabulary that we use in our pop culture. And it's, it's pretty interesting, but we now, you know, with time, we've re- recognized their theories were cutting edge back then, but some of them were pretty crazy <laughs> and pretty, pretty off. And so we've, we've kind of rotated through them and have updated and, and come to some new conclusions, which is great. But even the study of just how human behavior works and how human development works, that's what, 60 years ago? So behavioralism is, is pretty new. So as we get into these more nuanced conversations that are not as easy to observe and to measure or to medicate, or medicate that, that stuff's still within the last 20, 30 years. I mean, we've got new technologies or, or medications showing up every year. And we don't even know until we get some longitudinal studies around to figure out if they were really working. Yeah. So it's it's a pretty new field. And, and I think this is true with any new kind of, um, I don't know if I call it a breakthrough, but any anytime we actually get it right, it's going to take you know a decade, a couple decades for us to kind of just start to weed out some of the old information. So part of what you guys talk about in these podcasts and, and others that I've heard is that, you know, you've got some people that hold on to some, again, in my opinion, myths or misinformation for a generation. So even if we do have some new discoveries that we're really on the right track with that have been discovered within the last 10, 15 years, there are some people that are going to hold on to the wrong information about how trauma works and about how it shows up in relationships or our bodies or any of those kinds of things. They will go to their graves with the wrong information because human bias says, I just want to believe what I want to believe. So it's, it's tough to convince and help people adopt these new ideas. Um, it's, it's tough for people to kind of let go of that old you know, misconceptions. And Josh, would you say that that's even... Uh exemplified in your community particularly like a 20-year cop it takes them longer to adapt to a new idea such as you know oh yeah absolutely i mean i one of the ways i think i see it manifest is you know in in modern medicine how much you know medical discovery we can cure cancers that we couldn't cure before or other ailments you know when they've got robots and lasers and everything they can do to to be minimally invasive and everything like that but that's because you know medicine the science of medicine has been going on for hundreds of years and like you said ben behavioralism is a baby and so you know people look at it in my field it's like they'll go if they go they'll go at one time it's like you got one shot to cure my cure my ale or you or that this is this is bogus you know 
and 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 the buy-in too is you know with uh trauma particularly is it's like you know you get a group of guys that have been on a job for 10 years or more and it's like everybody in the room's got traumas you know and you know our habit has been to uh self-medicate or in group medicate as far as you know with the dark humor uh things like that to as coping mechanisms versus looking at it as an actual affliction um and that what you were exposed to what you experienced what you felt was actually not healthy yes it is part of your job it's part of your duty all that stuff but it was a hazard the same way a a firefighter that gets in a situation where he gets burned or where he gets suffers smoke inhalation or something like that those are on the job injuries that happen and 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 helping our people understand that yeah this is not just part of the job it is an on the job injury but it and trying to help them recognize that yeah but it is something that we can actually uh remedy we can mitigate we can work towards actual full recovery from but you got to buy in right you know and that's the hard thing is getting them to to buy in versus the i'm too old for that or that's just how it is and, and things like that you know and, and and it's unfortunate but yeah we're, we're we're the older we are the slower we are to come to the table i feel like yeah i, I think how our society gets people to buy in is is, is pretty interesting right i mean if if uh if trauma or, or mental health had the same budget and creativity as the pharmaceutical uh, folks right. that on Viagra, yeah, do you think we'd be having this conversation? Absolutely nope. not. No, it's pretty different. <laughs> yeah. Well, I I thought it was interesting because like we we've talked we've used the word trauma quite a bit, right? And if you actually look it up in the dictionary, it's such a broad definition. Right. The definition is a deeply distressing or disturbing experience. What the fuck does that even mean? Everything. Right? Like, ev- yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, so I guess it means that I have trauma from mayonnaise because I had a bad experience. There you I, go. And I will not eat that. I'm sorry for your loss, Austin. Uh, yeah. Nobody else is. That shit's gross. Um, but I mean, like, we've got to go deeper than that because that is. That is like such a broad term that that really like doesn't it doesn't help anyone understand what it is really like what what the physical symptoms are what the mental symptoms are what your body is doing when you're experiencing that and so I know that that's you, you've done a ton of research Josh has done a ton of research on on what is going on with people but like you know you were talking before this about you know neurologically what is going on in the system and like it's fascinating to me and you're like well we don't have to bring it up but like it's it's one of those things that's like explain neurologically in the lower brain what is going on with people well if, if i back up for a second and, and talk about a definition of, of trauma uh again going back to our, our earliest point um when i first got into this field that's that's how you treated trauma Someone needs to sit down and they need to tell their story. And, and we're all going to pat each other on the back and be like, way to be a brave soldier and tell your story. And, and we really know more now about how trauma works. We, we, we thought it was an event 
And now we understand that there's probably a series of events, probably conditions that you're around. But basically, it's this process of being threatened or staying in a threatening environment for a while. It's part of how trauma evolves. But it's, it's interesting that it's not only just us being exposed to trauma, or like an event or uh, you know a hazardous exposure of some kind, but there's also the internal process of us being overwhelmed and unable to kind of digest or process the particular event. Um, you know, if, if someone told me, hey, Ben, at four o'clock today, someone's going to burst into your office and say this and do this and threaten you in those particular ways. And then at four o'clock, someone walks in my office and does all those kinds of things. I'm walking away with two very different experiences. So the, the challenge is the event itself and how prepared we are and how we digest, again, make sense of the scenario that happened. So when we, we talk about that, I, I think that's kind of the new things that have kind of come up in the field is that um, part of what we're doing with clients is saying, what did happen to you? We want to know that. But the real work is what did you believe about yourself and about the world after it happened? That's, that's where the work is. And, and so... Again, that's, I could see how a lot of people going to therapy and saying, great, I'll give it a shot. I don't want to do it. I don't believe in it. This is a quacky, you know, weird little world they have, all these hippies. Uh, and I shared my story and I never, get, I never got better. And ironically, people who uh, do, do some trauma work, if they believe that sharing your story is the solution, unfortunately, what we do as humans, we just share the same story with the same plot, the same villains, the same rescuers, mm -hmm. the same whatever. We, of course, always being the victims, we don't really learn much from that. We don't really move on from that. We don't find a lot of closure and support in that. So part of, part of this process of learning or evolving out of, out of trauma is really trying to make sense of how did you make sense of the event and how do we help you make more of that experience? So you were actually recycling some of that information and actually using it to mature into a, a greater awareness, not just the same old story. And hopefully magically, if I just share what happened on at four o'clock on a Friday afternoon, then I'll, I'll just feel. Mm -hmm. you know. And so you're saying the key to that is being able to contrast a person's worldview before the event versus their worldview after the event, uh, maybe in, in specific views on things but being able to help them see that yeah this is how you were then this happened now this is how you are right you know for example um if we're talking about a childhood experience right mm -hmm. so we, we know now and that's again the last 20 years that there is uh you know epigenetics there's there's a biology of how well your parents handled stress how well your parents handled their responsibility of nurturing and connecting us. Those things are factors behind the scenes that would be relevant to how resilient we are. And then we're learning that as you're a kid growing up, how you, uh, again, how safe you felt, how connected you felt in relationships, how many resources you had growing up, that's going to have a, an impact on, on how you adult, you know, adjust to or manage this this horrible experience that happened at four o'clock today. So it, the, the interesting part about it is that we're, we're helping people recognize that, especially if there's a childhood experience, there is a set of beliefs that you uh, basically connected with when you were a kid. And to be honest, it's the best 
it's the best information you had when you were a little kid. But now that we know more, looking back, is there more that we can understand about what was happening in that kid's situation? And that's, that's something that's a little bit different. And so when you look into you know, EMDR, brain spotting, ART, some of the things that we offer, we're, we're, we're asking them to basically help us tell the rest of the story in what happened in this traumatic event. And it's not that the world's unsafe. The reality is that you are resilient, you are strong, and there's some other things that were not your responsibility. And there's other things we can help you connect with now that that experience is over and you're here safe in this new environment. And that's, that's a, it, it, it's a challenging thing because um, it's not like fixing an engine. No. And, and that's, but that's, again, that's the popular belief that's out there. And that's one of the many myths about treatment or about trauma work is that, you know, if you're a mechanic, you just identify the broken piece, you isolate it, you extract it, you replace it. And, and there is some, you know, that's a pretty simple equation that uh, I think people in the misinformation that's out there, they assume that's, that's how the, the human soul works or that's how mental health works is that we're supposed to just isolate this one idea, extract it from you, push the delete button, whatever metaphor you want to use. And then they should be able to go back to quote unquote normal and you're going to be resilient and fine. And you go back to say nice things about yourself instead of that bad thing you said about yourself. But that's just one of the many ideas that kind of screw people up is they've got this, this really awkward idea that probably was the best information their misinformed parent had mm -hmm. about how trauma works. But that's, that's what we're trying to undo in this process. And it doesn't happen nearly as quick as people are sold on. So do you, and this is obviously from the research that you've done and everything like that, like, you know, obviously the last hundreds of hundred plus years, like just war in general has dramatically changed, right? Like firearms, explosives, World War One, World War Two, Vietnam, you know, Afghanistan, Iraq, and all of those things. Do you believe that the children, as, as generation to generation, as, you know, the father and the mother, you know, the father experienced war and the mother experienced basically having to take care of the family by themselves and not knowing if their husband was going to come home, all of those things, that stress has carried over each generation into people now that seem to be more susceptible to trauma and PTSD. Do you get what I'm going with that? Like, Yeah, I... I that's one of the, maybe it's a better discussion for another day, but I think this, this conversation about generational trauma is, is a really fascinating one. And there's some, there's some really cool books that are out there, but it's, um, I, I think it's some of the, the ripple effects that is probably more destructive than people kind of recognize. So this, this dad that goes away to war, he comes back home. I think what's interesting is that, uh, you know, it's, it's the little kid watching mom not sleep. It's the little kid watching mom be depressed and isolated and struggling, and she might be drinking more. And his assumption that I've done something wrong, and how come mom doesn't love me? Those are the things that are not, you know, the black and white equation of a bomb went off and now I don't feel safe. But that's, that's some of what we're seeing downstream of, of this... this uh, this challenge we have in our culture is that we, we don't help little kids or adults really connect some of the uh, emotions and some of the ideas out there. And so, uh, yeah, we do our best as observers watching our parents go through all sorts of stuff. But I, I think there's, 
we're a very different generation. We're, we're two or three generations away from some of these big world wars. And um, the, the reality is, again, the idea of trauma or, uh, you know, I've, I've got negative self-esteem. Like those, those terms are, again, two or three decades old. So, again, we're, we're really just barely putting some, some, some descriptive and maybe some more accurate ideas to what people have been experiencing for a long, long time. But I think the, the challenge is, is that, um, yeah, we, we, just, we just don't know the difference sometimes. So, yeah, I think generationally there's, there's tons of things that are happening. Um, I think we're just starting to peel back those layers. But that kind of work takes usually years of therapy to kind of yeah. figure out what was going on. And the reality that my mom's inability to read my behavior and understand me was connected to the way that my mom was raised and the way that my grandmother was abused. Correct. So those are those are tricky ones to kind of make sense of when we're just trying to figure out how come I can't get out of bed and go to the grocery store. Yeah, that was that was a tough question for me. So I, I sorry, when you were talking about everything, like it just kind of started, the wheels started spinning in my uh, head of just like this generational impact that, you know, could or could not possibly make someone, you know, more susceptible to it. So, well, I, I think that to, to connect that with an idea we talked about earlier, if if we've got an, a generation prior to us that is immature in their ability to manage stress, then that's that's when it actually, you know, it's it's one thing if, uh, you know, if, if my mom or my dad or my grandmother, whoever, actually had the skills to understand and interpret the behaviors of what was happening around them, they could have interrupted all sorts of things. But the reality is that immaturity and our lack of, of resilience or our lack of resources to manage these situations is also what's passed down, not just the event that was difficult. Well, I think maybe a thing that's interesting that my wheel's spinning too, thinking about my my family and so forth is, you know, and I'm not even close to your level as far as really having the understanding, but as I think of my parents' um, maturity that we talked about before versus maybe what mine is having gone through what I've gone through and that now all of a sudden, you know, I can only imagine for you with your folks, your level of maturity in humanology in this kind of a field is more than theirs, perhaps. Theoretically. Well, <laughs> but I mean, so that like maybe they, they start talking to you about something and you're able, you're, you're understanding it on, on a whole different level than they have the experience and maturity to understand. And I found myself a couple of times with a couple of conversations with my parents where it's like, I think I get this piece better than you do, you know, and, you know, not, not that they're unintelligent or misinformed, they're uninformed. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I think one of the upsides of our culture evolving is that we've, we've now in our culture have more permission to talk about, yes. That, yes. about that kind of mm -hmm. stuff. Stuff that they never would have talked about with their parents. Right that their parents didn't even probably understand its existence thereof. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, for my folks to have a, to have that kind of a conversation with me was, it was, it was a foreign language to them. It was some, it was a con, it was an abstract that they wouldn't have obviously felt confident to, to go into details, let alone really understand anything about different things that maybe we've learned and the literature that's out there and stuff where it's like, Hey, we can go learn about this stuff. Right. Uh, 
you know, not just, we don't have to just be in the craft, but there's so many good books and, and stuff like that that have really started to dive into this where it's like, you can learn a lot about yourself and introspection and things like that where they've never had that opportunity. Right. And it, I think it's interesting because they, they are in the same shoes as most of us. We're like, I don't know if I want to learn. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there's that part things. too. I don't know if there's a big upside. Yeah. yeah and, and that's, that's very true. Going back to people entering treatment or just deciding to try and get some help. It's a, it's a hell of a dilemma of all. What if, what if we actually find out what's wrong? Yeah. And, and then what does it mean about my responsibility? And this is pretty overwhelming. I already felt terrible already. And now you're asking me to lengthen the list of things that I now know need attention. Like that's, uh, and if, and if you're still operating under that old paradigm, that if there's something wrong with you, that means you're defective. Mm -hmm. That means you're weak. That means you're broken. So self-exploration or self-correction is bad news yeah. under that mindset uh, as opposed to empowering. So I imagine what it's like for someone coming to treatment and we're like, good news. You get to find all these cool things about yourself. And they're like, this mm -hmm. is the worst sales pitch in, in history. Why would I want that? Yeah. And so it, it's not until people actually have some experience. It's not just reading the book, but having experience and watching other people walk around saying, I was scared. This was bad news. And guess what? I've, I've updated, I've matured in my belief that, that, that this information is really not destructive information. I don't have to live under this myth of if there's something wrong with me that I'm, I'm broken and defective yeah. and all that kind of stuff. So it really is cool to watch people kind of unwind some of those lies that we tell ourselves and recognize through the experience. And this is what I love about the group process is that I, I might be terrified about all these things, but I get to watch uh, a guy or a girl that I respect that is, is going through my exact struggle and they're brave and they're saying it out loud. And guess what? Nothing terrible happened. In fact, I appreciate and respect them even more because they had the, the grit to kind of show up and say those things. And now I have just a little bit more confidence, just a little bit more permission to, to say my little thing and then realize through that experience that, oh my gosh, this part of my head that told me since I was a little kid that if I felt or connected with this particular belief, that was the wrong information. Like, holy cow, it's a new world. Mm -hmm. I, I get to say and do lots of things. And then the process actually becomes useful as opposed to the, 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 the more immature mindset that self-exploration is just going to deepen this hole that I'm in. Well, I almost like when you bring that up, like, and Josh, you can maybe say if you felt this way too, but like being on the other side of that, right, where, where you've gone through the self-exploration and then had to do all of those things that you just talked about, like you forget that mindset of like wait i don't want to know more about myself because i still don't like myself so what's it like yeah. knowing more about someone i don't like is just going to deepen that feeling of not liking myself and like I, I almost forget that that's a that's a stage or a process that you have to go to or go through you know when when you do therapy or or anything like any any type of self-help i mean just meditation is, is that too as well because you're sitting inside of your own head without distractions and cell phones and, and all that stuff. Like, did you, did you go through that at all? Yeah. And, and, and the thing that's, that I'm, the parallel I'm drawing again here is, 
You know, I think of it if, if, if I was physically sick and I go to the doctor and obviously I don't know what's wrong with me, but I know something's wrong with me, you know, we basically open our bodies up to whatever test you got to do, whatever you got to poke, whatever prod, whatever blood, whatever fluid you've got to draw, you figure it out so that you can cure it. But on the flip side with this is it's like you're presenting yourself and you're saying something's wrong with me. I don't know. And the, and instead of them being able to poke prod and pull a little blood and say, you've got cancer or, or whatever, it's kind of like, I don't want to, I don't want to get poked. I don't want to get prodded. I don't want to, I don't want to find out what's wrong with me. Like, can we just, can we bandage this? Can we cover this versus treat it? Right. Great point. That's a great point. I I think it's ironic. You know, here's this, here's these, there's, there's tests and there's discussions and there's things we can do to peel back the layer Mm -hmm. and figure out what's really been hurting you. And the thought is, it might save my life, but I don't know if I want to pay two hundred, you know, two fifty for it. Yeah, right. <laughs> or a buck fifty, mm-hmm. or or I mean, it's again the, the the pieces of this process that that blow my mind is it's it's the it's the free stuff. Yeah, that, that probably saves lives. Yeah, not not this super exotic, sophisticated sort of thing yeah, that we're exactly. talking about in terms of the evolution of research mm-hmm. and the mental health field. It's it's those little things that are just like, yeah, you can do it for free. You yeah. do it at home. You can do it mm-hmm. with your family. You can do it today. But, yeah, I don't have time for that. Yeah. Yeah. Just give me a Band-Aid. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Send me, give me my note. Yep. So I go yep. back to work mm-hmm. and uh, do it all over again. So much to think about. Mm. Like, this got my wheels spinning to another direction that I, I haven't thought about in a while. And this is the kind of, I mean, like, realistically, I think that that, like, what you talked about or what everyone talked about was something that a lot of people are actually going through at the moment, especially people that listen into things like this. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I I think we have very two distinct um, types of people that listen to this, which is, like, the people that are, like, kind of on that edge of, like, maybe thinking about looking at some kind of help, right? Like, the the podcast itself is a wellness podcast about mental health. So you, you've got people who are trying to work up the courage maybe to, to reach out or, or do what they need to do. And then you have also the other side, right. Of people that have gone through it. So they find it interesting to, you know, find out more information about what's going on inside of their heads or, or, you know, uh, maybe how to push through certain factors. And so I think that those, the things that we talked about today are going to be, something that are going to weigh heavy on people. So it was a cool conversation, right? Like it, 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 Ben, we always enjoy having you on. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. You're going to give us the outro, Josh. You're going to thank Ben or just, yeah, thanks Ben. It's Ben. It's been uh, a name tag next time. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, I had a brain cramp. Okay. Yeah, just, it's, just so it's we were late afternoon. <laughs> I'm under caffeinated and here we are. Yeah. And I, and I am going to put you on blast. So he, Josh made us, delete the first take we had because he couldn't remember Ben's name. In my defense, I'm just an average white bald dude. Yeah. I'm pretty forgetful. Yeah, so, I mean, he's vanilla. Look well, at him. Okay, right? no, so check this out. Today, four different people have confused the two of us. So, he, you know, people... So you're think, vanilla too. All yeah, right, exactly. Here we go. Yeah, and yeah. I was like, hey, wait, he's got way more gray in his beard than I do. Mm-hmm. Like, that should be enough. That's true. So right was me there. hosting the last few minutes with two very unentertaining boring people 
and I barely had to say a word. So I mean, it's just it like must every, be the magic of me. It's just like every other podcast we do, right? Right. Yeah. You had thirteen words today. It's pretty impressive. Pretty impressive. Yeah. You just quietly stare over there and stick your chest out at us. That's right. I bring the charm. That's all That's I need. Right. That's all you get. You are the best looking one here, at least. All right. Anyway, <laughs> let's be done. All right, man. Thank you, uh, Ben. Thank you for coming on. Sure. We're gonna make you come on more often. Cool. Thank you for listening to this segment of No One Fights Alone. No One Fights Alone is sponsored by Chateau Recovery is a 16-bed treatment facility nestled in the foothills of the Wasatch Mountains in Midway, Utah. Chateau's First Responder Resiliency Program is designed to treat the unique challenges and issues that first responders encounter in the course of their careers. Chateau's comprehensive and highly individualized approach to treatment addresses more than just the presenting issues. It addresses the why. Each of their seasoned, trauma-trained, and culturally competent therapists utilize evidence-based, specialized therapies to treat trauma at its core and enable clients to begin the healing process while developing a resilient and healthy relationship with stress. Chateau Recovery is trusted by departments and agencies from around the country to treat responders and veterans. In fact, it is one of only a handful of facilities nationwide that is vetted and approved to treat members of the Fraternal Order of Police. For more information, or to speak to a representative, go to chateaurecovery.com or call 888-507-5031. No One Fights Alone is also sponsored by First Responder Trauma Counselors. First Responder Trauma Counselors are subject matter experts in proactive behavioral health care for frontline workers through their National Peer Support Academy. This 40-hour all-badges, all-uniforms, and all-scrubs educational experience helps to create caring, honest, and empathetic peer support relationships with your fellow frontline workers. The FRTC National Peer Support Academy is taught by actual first responders who have gone back to school to become culturally competent, licensed behavioral health clinicians that teach from lived experiences, not just theories from books. This fast-paced immersive educational academy will not just change your life, it will help you save the lives of others. For additional details, visit 991overwatch.org or call 970-222-419-3. This could be the most life-changing academy you'll ever attend.